Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. The Torah portion Bo, which means go or come, covering Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 16. And one of the uh, things, if you want to see some previous studies that we've done on this particular passage, I've done lots of studies and even ones that are related to this passage, uh, both throughout the Torah, the prophets, and the apostolic writings, you can just go to halal.info slash p15. That's halal.info slash p15, p like Peter, 15. So starting off first, uh, Larry, you have a question. Yeah, well, I have a couple of things, but I'll only do one of them. And okay, right now, um, when uh, it, it says there that at Passover, that that would be the first month of their year. So why do they have another first of the year? Well, you have a few firsts of the year, a couple of which are spe- specifically noted in Scripture. This one being the first of the cycles of the memorials. Uh, this cycle being the most important. Then you also have the one that comes at the beginning of the seventh month, and you see that they're expressed in the writings and the prophets and specifically tied to a the time of, um, of Yom Kippur specifically and the day of blowing trumpets. So this one is to, you could say, hit the reset button for the people of Israel to align them to say, hey, this is where you are beginning. And that's part of what we'll be getting into today is what is beginning and why it's so important to focus on this beginning, this new beginning, this uh, new birth that's being given to Israel. And the other cycle related to the Day of Blowing Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is also, you could say, a resetting of things, about the, specifically about the reigning of the kingdom, the declaring of the, um, the years of release, the Shemitah, the sabbatical years it's also called, and also about the Obel or the Jubilee year. And that that is about also about freedom, but freedom of a different and you could say more uh, lasting kind. So you could say that these are hallmarks of years and starting beginning points of freedom, both the starting out to be the beginning part out of bondage and then going from your free to being truly free and free for all time. So, you could say thematically, that is why you have uh, two of those. There's other examples and explanations that are given, but uh, those are some general themes that you can see for why you have these uh, two beginnings of years. Does that help at all? Yes, thank you. Okay, yeah. Uh, again, you know, lots of people over thousands of years have, have come up with explanations for this. But uh, to me, that's 
one way that they make sense together is that you're looking at the beginning of a, a new birth on the first one here beginning this month of Aviv and then you have the beginning of the rain this new rain that will truly be brought forth there in the Messiah era and the day of the Lord which uh, talked about why it, that's coming in the seventh month so uh, in in this just a very quick overview of where we're uh, where we've gone and looking at uh, the plagues as, as they've come along, we've seen that this whole discussion of letting Israel go, letting you know, Israel being freed from this house of bondage in Mitzrayim uh, started back in Exodus chapter 5, and it's been chugging through to this period. But Again, this is something that goes back even further, and we saw that mentioned in the passage today about that this uh, this day of freedom came on the very same day. And as we talked about a couple of portions earlier as to, well, what is this 430 years all about? That clock is really starting, that descent toward Mitzrayim, descent toward Egypt, and coming out of it is something that goes all the way back to the time of Avraham. So, thus, this birth into freedom actually started all the way back with a calling out of Avraham. And you see some connections uh, thematically and also with some of the details about the the deep darkness, something you saw also with that vision that uh, Avraham was given as the, the clock started for this period that was now brought forth here in the, the passage we're looking at here with the the Passover and the start of unleavened bread, which kicked off the new birth of Israel into freedom. And so we've gone through all of these plagues, and here in this portion here today, uh, we've seen the eighth plague with the locust, the ninth plague with the darkness, and then the tenth plague with the death of the firstborn. And with that is the final straw. And as you saw in this particular passage, there was the... <laughs> the um, sa sadly, it took this, and we'll talk about it in a moment, it took the heaven prying the fingers of Paro off of Israel to let him go. You know, you saw the incremental part. Oh, some people can go, other people can't go. You can't take your flocks with you. Okay, you can't take your flocks with you. Eventually, that release has to come. And you see that through this, this is the who has the overwhelming power in this it is the kingdom of the lord it is heaven that has the overwhelming power but paro has to be pharaoh has to be convinced that he is actually letting them go but in a sense his whole nation is his empire is being brought to its knees as his courtiers remind him <laughs> this country is being destroyed let them go and as we've talked about in previous times through this passage that this idea of uh, hardening we, we get it hardening is one word in english but you actually get the reflection of two sorts of types of things from the hebrew words being expressed there of a uh, strengthening and a bulwark 
you know, digging in your heels. So, you know, basically to strengthen him in the position that he had. And then when he's in that position to not let him go back, because the whole point of that was, was to show not only Mitzrayim, but to sh- show the whole world and the land where Israel would eventually be coming into and all the nations around them over time, who truly is in charge. So, thus, you see as this passage ends with the claiming of the firstborn of Israel, but that also is tied back to the having to free Israel with the tenth plague involving the firstborn of Mitzrayim dying. So, just in a bit of a rewind to places we've gone before, um, we covered actually during the time of trumpets, the uh, a study you'll find at uh, halal.info slash trumpets dash 2020, because uh, the, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, Daniel covered this, it's called uh, How the Seven Trumpets of Revelation Are Revealed Through the Torah and Prophets. And in that particular one, you'll see that when you go through Revelation, the the plagues related to the trumpets and then the plagues related to the bowls, they can just seem very mysterious. Where, what is this all talking about related to the day of the Lord? But as uh, we see in this particular study and some others that we've done over time, that these are expressed in other passages in the prophets, such as Uel or Joel, uh, Zechariah, Yeshiahu or Isaiah, and even in Exodus itself, these elements that you see in Revelation have been seen before. And you'll see that in Revelation, that is the general theme of uh, not only, as it mentions, that the, the, the first verses of Revelation, where it says this is the revealing or the unveiling of the uh, Messiah, Yeshua, but this is also what the Messiah is doing in bringing freedom to the world. And part of that is, just like what you're seeing here with uh, Mitzrayim or Egypt, is having to pry the fingers of the world powers apart so that eventually, as you see at the end, that every knee will bend and confess that the Lord is actually in control and that the Lord is supreme overall, and that this new beginning for the world is the right way to go. But, as you see over the course of Revelation, it is not a decision or a position that they come to willingly. But, sadly, it is something that the Lord has to bring to an end to end the suffering, so that there will be no more tears, no more death, no more pain that the former ways will be passed away. So, just briefly, you can see on that particular study in Revelation what uh, some of the, the parallels are between uh, what you see in Revelation and what you see in the prophets as well. Um, some of those parallels are uh, related to the trumpet plagues, which are found in Revelation chapters 8 through 11, and then the bowl plagues, which are found in Revelation 15 and 16. But you see that there's a correlation between a lot of them, such as in the first trumpet, one-third of the earth uh, destroyed, and you see 
the uh, the seventh plague with related to hail, very similar thing of taking out a portion of uh, Mitzrayim's crops and trumpet two, one third of the sea, which really a source of food and also a source of what you saw earlier with the first trumpet. So this is another source of food coming from the seafood. Plague number five, uh, livestock being killed, that being land food. Uh, so we got surf and turf here. Trumpet number three, one third of the rivers, about the ability to have water to drink and to grow crops. And plague number one in Egypt, the blood into the Nile. So a main source of water. Because when you when you look at Egypt, it is arid except for this little strip on either side of the Nile, going from its uh, upper reaches, which is in the south of Egypt, all the way up to the Delta area. And that's why the Delta area was lush. That uh, Goshen area was the prime area for Mitzrayim. The prime uh, breadbasket of Mitzrayim was in the Delta area. And if you didn't, if you suddenly then had the Nile become <laughs> not a source of of water then egypt is has a huge problem one of the things that uh people have noted throughout time is that the major cities of the world spring up where around water or waterways because not only is it a source of transportation but it's a source of life living water is a source of life water that is running by is a source of life there are a few kind of um, major examples of a significant city in the world that is not specifically on a water source. And one of those uh, key ones that, that some have noted is Yerushalayim itself. But quite interestingly, what do you see in the prophets? Is that a part of the Messianic era is what? You will have springs of water that will flow out from Zion. So, indeed, even Yerushalayim will become a source of the true living water that will truly give life to the world in the world to come. So, uh, we see also with uh, trumpet number four in Revelation, uh, one third of the heavens being stricken and plague number nine that we just read about here. Uh, darkness, uh, darkness that could be felt. So, very uh, heavy darkness. I mentioned before that uh, I grew up in Anchorage and we had a very bad uh, eruption of Mount Spur, a volcano that's directly west across the Cook Inlet from Anchorage. And uh, it dropped. You could, I could watch as the, as the ash cloud was heading toward Anchorage and it was just like this curtain of black. And when it finally got to over Anchorage, I mean, it just turned day into night, and it was coming down so thick, it was like sand that was dropping out of the sky, and it, you could feel it coming down out of the sky, but this darkness is far beyond that in the sense that people were groping about in the darkness, and a very interesting picture that this is uh, a, you could say a darkness that's beyond just you, uh, the ability of your physical eyes to see that you're also talking about a blindness that goes to the spiritual aspects of not being able to see that. In Revelation Trumpet 5, you've got the, the locust demons coming, and here in Plague Number 8, in Exodus, you've got the locusts here. Interestingly enough, uh, when some of the sages have uh, 
mentioned that this particular type of locust, the devouring locust, is one of several types that you actually see the prophet Yuel talk about. And you get the picture in reading Joel that it is uh, not just... not just the physical little insects that are involved with some of these these locusts that are coming. Definitely, you have the aspects of uh, either supernatural powers or even um, military powers being involved with these plagues that is talked about with the Day of the Lord. So, yes, it was that plague described as something stupendous at the time of the Exodus, but the later time the day of the lord being something that would be even beyond that in trumpet number six in revelation one third of the humans killed trumpet uh plague number 10 here we have the firstborn of mitzrayim that are killed and trumpet seven you have the consummation of all things where you in revelation it shows that the lamb and his forces are conquering the dragon and uh that you also see that in this case the dragon was allowed to persist even though he was a tempter and a liar still allowed to persist for a time and in the time of the Pesach there in Exodus we just read about you have the blood of the Pesach the blood of the Passover lamb or goat blocking the Lord's destroyer. So when it talks about the Lord moving through Egypt and blocking the destroyer, uh, this is indeed uh, the Lord actually sending the destroyer. And we'll see hints of that as we move on through the account of the Exodus moving toward the Mount Sinai and into the lands. Uh, Sadly, we encounter the destroyer again. But uh, this time, it's a, the destroyer is directed toward uh, the people who don't want to go along. The ones who, uh, kind of like the old song goes, they left their heart in San Francisco. Well, these people left their heart in Mitzrayim. And uh, sadly, that protection that the original Pesach brought, uh, this protection not offered again but this particular case because that connection to Mitzrayim had to be cut off. Uh, some further connections of the bowl plagues in Revelation 15 and 16, you know, and some connections that you see in the plagues of the Exodus. Uh, bowl number one with the sores, you got plague number six with the boils, uh, bowl number two with the blood in the sea, plague number one, blood in the Nile, and then you see it repeated, blood, uh, or bowl number three with the blood in the rivers, again with the blood in the Nile there in Exodus Bowl number four, about the sun burning people. Now, that's quite opposite from the darkness that could be felt, but it is quite interesting that when you see in Revelation that you have the um, battle against the sun power, and it is interesting that, well, what was one of the chief deities of the, uh, the pantheon of Mitzrayim, and that was Ra, or the sun god. So, we don't specifically see that mentioned here, but darkness, in a sense, is a strike against Ra, against the the sun god, the one who brings the nurturing for the crops, who they, the people in Mitzrayim thought was their source of life. Well, that source of life from Ra was cut off to the point where, you know, this darkness was something that could be felt. Uh, bowl number five about darkness. Uh, of course, it lines up with plague number nine with darkness. 
Bowl number six, it talks about the great river Euphrates being dried up. Now, that not specifically related to a plague, but it is something that came down on Mitzrayim nonetheless with the Red Sea uh, being dried up, at least an area for Israel to go through on dry land. Something will be coming up in our next Torah portion. But nonetheless, this was a plague against Mitzrayim because <laughs> the army of Mitzrayim uh, went down with this and was taken out. Bowl number seven, back in Revelation, uh, got an earthquake accompanied by thunder, lightning, and plague number seven was also not only with hail, but it talks about thunder and lightning coming along with that. And uh, some of the plagues in Exodus that you don't see in, in Revelation with the bowls are about the gnats and the flies. So, and the other people have connected these plagues in the Exodus to some of the the deities of Mitzrayim, which you know, really fits totally with what you see both in Exodus and in Revelation, that these are both what? They are proclaiming who the Lord is and judgment upon these so-called false deities, these ones that are keeping not only the people of God, but also the whole world hostage and in bondage. Some big ideas that we get from the Parashat Bo, this Torah reading called Bo. We get the focus of this is the idea of the destroyer coming against the firstborn. The beginning of months, we uh, talked about that with uh, Larry's question. The first Pesach and the first memorial of the matzah or the unleavened bread. Now, we'll get to this more when we get around to the time of Pesach and unleavened bread, when we talk about these in much greater detail and how you see this thread woven throughout the Bible from all the way from the Torah down through the writings and the prophets and down into the apostolic writings. But you see this together, that this is a part of the new birth, a part of this new birthing of the people. And you see that part of the new birth that comes with the end that we saw in, Ex in Exodus 13 with the claiming of the firstborn. Sean, you have a question. Yeah. Uh, so in Genesis, right, and darkness was on the face of the deep, that Hoshech, is this the same kind of darkness as that Hebrew word? Hosha, bless you. <laughs> uh, dark darkness, yes. This darkness, um, you could you could say it is kind of an interesting thing that you see the encounter with darkness. Um, and glad you brought that up because it is something that you see also. Where do we meet this again with this great darkness, which is where John chapter one, and then you see it also in John chapter three, where it's talking about the light and the darkness because and especially in john chapter 3 when it says that people want to shrink away from the light because they like the darkness the darkness is a cover it's no no mysterious thing as to why most crime happens at night over under the cover of darkness because you may not see it coming. People are unaware. As the, and we even see that in the and the uh, Gospels, where Yeshua is talking about his, his coming is like a thief in the night. Because if you're asleep, you're not going to be expecting it. You're not going to be ready to take it on. 
But sadly, we see in our modern culture, and as it was even in ancient culture, that when uh, the people become more brazen and they uh, become more lawless, even that which normally happens in the darkness spills over into the daytime because they are just, they don't fear any, uh, any sort of uh, repercussions for what they do. They don't fear any sort of judgment coming because the, that which restrains a person themselves and that which restrains a society and its, uh, its lawfulness is broken down and destroyed. So, one of the things when we talk about things that are broken down and destroyed and what then remains going forward, we see that the cost of the freedom of Israel, the cost of the freedom of Israel was the death of the firstborn of Mitzrayim. And that is something that is a part of when we memorialize, it's a part of the telling of the account of the Exodus. Not only then, but of us now and going forward into the day of the Lord is the death of the firstborn of Mitzrayim. Now, that death of the firstborn of Mitzrayim, you could say, well, Mitzrayim was the, the adversary, but those were the actions of, you could say, the parents, so to speak, then came upon the children in that sense. And you'll see down in the, in the day of the Lord, a similar thing happens where you have the actions of the leaders, the actions of the beast, the false prophets, and these evil spirits that, that come out of these various powers from the dragon, that they then drag those people along with them down. So, that is a part of what we uh, memorialize at Pesach is the great cost that that comes into. And that is also, and when we talk about the cost of our freedom from slavery to this world's death walk away from the creator of heaven and earth, that that also costs the maker's firstborn son, Yeshua HaMashiach or Jesus the Christ. So that is a key part of the the um, the themes of Pesach from its very first foundations. So then when you get down to the apostolic time period, that this theme, again, is not coming out of thin air. It's not something that the apostles dreamed up. This was woven through Pesach from its very beginning. That this theme, that the death of the firstborn was a sad but sadly necessary aspect to gain freedom. Something that we'll actually be getting into a little bit more of, of why this cost was actually needed. And you'll see it not only in the original Pesach, not only in our current time frame for when we ourselves are reborn and when we are freed from our old way of bondage, but also in the day of the Lord and why that... Um, say really sad separation has to happen the the sad judgment has to happen at the that particular time as it's mentioned in the prophets that this is a a strange or a foreign act that the lord has to do to finally destroy those who do not want to go along those who actually fight against the kingdom of god so going on this uh further so, while this, this freedom, 
that uh, Israel got, while that freedom was given overnight, it would actually take thousands of years of wandering and the exiles and the regatherings for the people of God to learn actually what freedom means. You, you see it uh, mentioned in, uh, in a particular time periods, like um, in the Psalms when it mentions that, you know, uh, I can walk in freedom because of your law. And you see the, the Apostle Yaakov, and uh, also called James, he mentions in his letter that he calls it the law of liberty. And why it's called the law of liberty gets to something that we're we'll be talking about a little bit further as we go along in this as to why all of this was actually necessary about freedom. So moving on further, we see that in this with uh, the Pesach and our freedom and the original freedom that this war between heaven and the kingdom of the adversary is foretold back there in Genesis 3.15 with the enmity between you, meaning the serpent, meaning the adversary, and the woman, or Chava or Eve, that that would be going on from generation to generation to generation until the uh, one, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And then you, you see that uh, prophesied through the prophets. You see that um, beginning that's uh, the kingdom of heaven being at hand there in the gospels and then you see that bringing its fulfillment there in the prophets and also wrapped up into a nice bow with the book of revelation bringing all of those themes together so those who heed this call to teshuva to return to the kingdom of heaven that that war is then ending that that destroyer is no longer going after those who are returning who have been given freedom by the great pesach the great passover offering so in that great pesach the perfect pesach as he mentioned there during what's commonly called the last supper or the seder right before his death the passover remembrance right before his death he mentions that this is the new covenant of my blood when he's uh, lifting up the uh, cup of uh, deliverance. And that's uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, with a recounting that the Apostle Paul has of that particular last Seder, the Last Supper. And it's also mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, and when it mentions what this new covenant is and the role of this new covenant, the blood of the new covenant in the freedom that is given to the people of Israel. And as you saw, even as it's recounted here in uh, the particular passage we read today in Exodus, that this is something not only for the native-born Israel, but also for the foreigner, the sojourner who wants to uh, graft himself in, to be join in, to be adopted into the people of Israel. This would be something that would be for them too. So with this, this uh, ending of the war between heaven and uh, the people who have been caught up by the adversary from the beginning parts of uh, Genesis that we read about, we're seeing that this is the release 
will be seen that this is a journey going to Sinai, as was told to to Pharaoh originally. It's like, hey, they they need to go into the desert to to worship me, and you see the thing that was told from the Lord to Moshe, saying you will bring them back here. So at the at the burning bush, he's saying, you're going to bring them back here to this mountain. And to this mountain, they will not only uh, be given the charging, the marching orders, the living testimony of the Lord, but also given the new direction. And as you could see, um, it's great fulfillment again with the, uh, Shavuot or Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, not only the basis for how you uh, go free and the direction that you should be going, the, the map, you could say, to the land, but also how you can get there and the, the power that will get you there in the process to get to the land, to get to his rest, as he calls the promised land. And with this, we see that the, the new covenant is Sinai plus the Spirit of God. That's why you, and when we get around to Shavuot or Pentecost time, we see that these two events uh, coincide not only in theme, but also in time. So that's why did you see this particular outpouring of the Spirit of God at uh, Pentecost, as it's re- recorded in Acts chapter 2, on that Shavuot, because it's related to what happened at the first Shavuot, or the first meeting there at the mountain with the giving of the Lord, uh, Lord's law, and the, as it's called, the tablets of the testimony, the tablets of the witness of who the Lord is. You see the accounts of what the, the new covenant is and how it does encompass both Sinai and the Spirit together in the two great new covenant prophecies, which are quoted also in the apostolic writings. And you'll see in the book Hebrews are quoted several times. So this is not just some sort of um, passing inference. This is something the apostles saw was integral to what the teaching of the new covenant was. And a couple of those being in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And just to remind ourselves of these, we'll just go over a couple of these here uh, together. So we'll be getting back to Jeremiah here in our time together. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, says, Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember 
no more. <laughs> Hallelujah. That is one of the key parts of what the new covenant is all about. And when the Yeshua was talking about this is the blood of the new covenant, this is expressed in at length in the Gospel of John during the uh, chapters 13 through 17, where you see that in, in particular, this is something where uh, the revelation of who the Lord is was a key role of the Mashiach, the, the Messiah. His key role was to uh, help people know the Father, and knowing the Father is the key to eternal life, the, the key to the uh, new world that is to come. And uh, just by noting also in Ezekiel chapter uh, chapter thirty six, so this is in the in the context as you might recall of these great prophecies of bringing back the nations together, and um, especially in thirty seven where you see the prophecy of the the two sticks of um, of Ephraim and Yehuda of Israel and Yehuda. Uh, being brought back together and united and all of those who are attached to them and have come into the family of God through either of them, how they are brought back together. It's mentioned here earlier in Ezekiel uh, 36 verses 25 and 26. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And it goes on even into 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And thus, you see like in, in the Gospel of John, where it mentions that, uh, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments you will listen to my instructions and he mentions earlier when he says you know what i've heard from the father i relate to you and as he's battling with the adversary in the wilderness he's saying you know man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god quoting from deuteronomy so this is indeed what this new covenant this new um, contract between heaven and earth through the people of Israel, through the people of God, is all about. This is about the Sinai, uh, which way you are to go, what is truly righteousness, and the Spirit, how you actually make that happen, how you, to, to use a modern term, how you detox from the world to get that out of your system and truly move in a different way. And as we saw there in Exodus chapter 13, and it talks about that only those who are circumcised uh, can eat the Pesach to be a part of the memorial of the Pesach. You see that um, just like many things in scripture, the the uh, physical part of the memorial is truly undergirded by something happening within inside you. Because this is something that you'll see the prophets rail about from Isaiah chapter 1, where, you know, says, I hate my feasts. He says, I hate my feasts, as you read on through the whole book, 
because of what people had done to the feasts of God, what they've done to the sacrifices, the memorials of God, what they had turned the tabernacle into, what they had turned the priesthood into. So, and we see here that a part of the exodus, a part of the going out from the house of bondage is to leave behind to circumcise the old way of life. In one part we'll be getting to here in some weeks ahead, it talks about it's a part of rolling back the reproach of Mitzrayim, rolling back the, you could say, the, the stench of Mitzrayim, that way that was uh, still stuck in bondage. And that's uh, mentioned in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, uh, 30 verse 6 and in jeremiah 4 4 this aspect of circumcising the old way of life circumcising your heart this is not just about flesh because as the apostle paul puts it you know if you're thinking that this is just you must do this to be saved you know you might as well just mutilate yourself because you're not actually accomplishing what heaven actually put this memorial in place for and it's expressed in a different way in in Acts chapter 15 where it's saying, you know, must we be circumcised according to this tradition to be saved? And as Acts chapter 15 goes on, it mentions, hey, we didn't come into the kingdom of God, you know, truly and fully as the prophecies of the new covenant came in there. We didn't come through by uh, a different way. Uh, the new covenant is prophesied to be something that the spirit of god is writing on our hearts so the people um people of israel by lineage by descent came into the kingdom of god that way those that attach themselves on to israel or as paul puts it you know the wild branches get grafted in to the tree of israel the tree that the lord planted that comes through the lord's doing and that as uh, you see earlier on in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, that is something that the Spirit of God does. Because without the Spirit of God, it's kind of what you see in Romans chapter 7, without the Spirit of God, you're left uh, struggling with, okay, here is the law of God, and I say, yeah, that's, that's right, that's good, that's holy and just, but this is what I want to do, and this is what I keep doing. So, who can save me from this body of death? That's where it goes into Romans chapter 8, talking about what the Spirit of God does. That is why that the revelation at Sinai of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and everything that flows out of that, and the Spirit of God writing on the hearts of people, basically an internal transformation of people, those two are absolutely essential parts of the new covenant and essential parts of really truly getting to know what God is doing and why uh, God sent the Mashiach and what the mission of the Mashiach is, both in past, present, and in the future. And you see that in that aspect that we just read there in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, that if you truly are being turned around and you're going in a different way, the charge that uh, the Mashiach gave to the woman uh, caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Live a different life. You know the correct way to go. You're 
iniquities have been covered, your sins have been covered, your transgressions have been covered. Now, go and live like you're a part of the family of God. So, moving on this further, that freedom comes at a steep cost. We just saw that with the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn of God, the Mashiach. It comes at a steep cost. And sadly, it comes at a cost that is really so high when you're just talking about freedom in general, but also this particular uh, freedom of our lives from bondage to the way the world works and what has drug it down to the place where, where it's at now over a long, long period of time, thousands of years, that this cost of going in the other direction can be so high that some doubt whether it's even necessary and, and some even reconsider as to whether it's even worth it as you go forward. And I know from my own life, when, when I encountered a point where that cost was high, and I had family members that were even starting to come against me. I was wondering myself in anguish whether this was even worth it. Whether you know, it was worth it to really create such chaos in, in the family because of this. So, we, and we see this also in the lives of the martyrs throughout the, the centuries. The, the people of God, the prophets. That... In all this, this could mean you know losing your friendships, losing your job even, your family relationships, and even your life may be at risk by going in a different route. And uh, Yeshua talked about this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. And he said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. That's, he's quoting from Micah uh, chapter 7, verse 8. Very interesting to read all of Micah chapter 7. Going to get to that in a minute. Uh, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Because one of the the passage that uh, Mashiach is quoting from in Micah chapter 7 is in the context of <laughs> Israel as gone downhill in its spiritual its, its spiritual uh, hold that uh, people are turning in each other um, because they are just stabbing each other in the back that the the idea of righteous people among them is that's lost it's something that's happened throughout time. If you might recall even in recent memory um, and even going on right here today that um, in communist countries and totalitarian countries, you have this thing where people are afraid of, especially afraid of their own children because the state will take 
the children and and tell them that they must for the sake of the state for the sake of all society they must report on their parents if their parents are saying or doing anything that is uh, undermining the state and dragging it down that's uh, something that's happening in china today that's something that's happened in north korea today and that's uh, something that we've seen even in recent times here in this particular country um sadly it started with some good intentions but has now progressed to the part well well beyond that um you see that the nose kind of came in the in the tent uh, earlier part of uh, or the mid part of the the 20th century with the um fear about communism and actual uh, people infiltrating into the government. It's often called McCarthyism, after Senator Joe McCarthy, who was um, looking for uh, communist infiltrators. Now, amazingly, you know, he was going after all kinds of people, and both in society and Hollywood and, and industry, and come up with this list of uh, people who were a part of this. Now, interestingly enough, we saw from when the uh, Kremlin, the Soviet Union, when it fell, and after the archives of the Soviet Union were finally revealed under the, the glasnost policy or the openness, the truth-revealing uh, uh, policy that was there for a period of time, that you look in there that actually, indeed, there was a lot of uh, infiltrators in all kinds and all levels of government. We we found some uh, spies here and there, but it was very very widespread. Now it the the paranoia went well beyond that. To people were re reporting this and that of their you know, fellow countrymen in uh, rightly and wrongly. But there was this idea that you would go try to weed the people out. Now, with this, we saw in more modern times, after the, uh, the tragedy and the attack of 9-11, uh, where you had the Patriot Act that followed in here in the United States, and where you had in there a similar sort of uh, system that developed. Um, and in New York City, famously came up with the phrase, if you see something, say something. It's even been adopted by the Department of Homeland Security, which uh, developed after the time of 9-11 to try to weed out these particular influences in there. And today, there's the concern about uh, domestic terrorism yet again, to the part where what people think is now being brought to bear. Uh, who you support, what your ideology is, can make you... You know, banished from your job people are losing their jobs today for what they believe they're losing their um, ability to even talk in society and on and on it goes being shunned being criticized even being brought up on on charges um, you know pastors are in hiding because of what they were associated with over time in the the, the past year or so so, this is something that is even happening here today. So, when we talk about the cost, is it actually worth the cost of all this? But, with when we're thinking about the cost of it all, it's gone into, when we're talking about the shunning 
it's given the term cancel culture, uh, something we, we actually talked about in a one of our uh, ec- extra innings uh, session that uh, came after a recent uh, a recent uh, hello services. Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But this idea of cancel culture is it may seem foreign to us because hey. We here in the United States, we've got the the First Amendment to the Constitution, which among its uh, five various aspects of uh, freedom is you have the freedom of speech, of religion, and assembly, and, you know, also redress your government. But this idea seems quite foreign to this. But really, if you go back in time, you'll see that the hatred against righteousness has been in the heart of mankind, even as far back as, you know, when uh, Cain or Cain murdered Habel or Abel there in Genesis chapter 4, as that's recorded. Because what was the thing you saw there? He saw that that's, uh, Habel's offering was accepted and his was rejected. Now, there was the warning that the Lord had given. It's like, you know, Cain, hey, this is, this is at your doorstep. Don't let this in. You can step back away from this. But this hatred consumed him, and he let it in to his, his life. And, and then that led to murder. So, thus, you can see... Eh, it's a topic for another time, but actually somewhat related to what we're mentioning here is that you see that slander in the word is even compared to murder. And the Mashiach even talks about that when he's talking about uh, saying raka or thinking of contempt or you fool or, you know, you good for nothing. You're basically a uh, condemned to hell. That those levels of uh, slander um, is actually uh, akin to getting the punishment of murder because you are then destroying the person's um, the person's character, the person's name, which goes into something we talked about on our last uh, time here together when we were talking about uh, the revealing of the name of God there in Exodus chapter three. So. Uh, cancer culture is one definition of it. This comes from, uh, you know, Wikipedia, which, you know, not, not the greatest of sources, but still one that uh, mentions cancel culture or call-out culture is a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of a social or professional circles, either online or in social media or in the real world or both. And those who are subject to this ostracism are said to be canceled. And... um we actually talked a bit about that in our uh, discussion. Uh, Tammy jotted down the notes from our conversation and study uh, together. It's, it, you'll find on the website you search for how believers can avoid succumbing to cancel culture for errant beliefs, you know, beliefs that are in error or what they think are in error. <laughs> There's can be quite a, quite a big difference between those. So, uh, you can find that on our website where we talked about that. And But one of the things that you see in this idea of losing your life, losing your friendships, losing your job, is that starting a life in the kingdom, starting a new life in the kingdom, is really then backing away, can actually bring the scorn to the kingdom. So, if you start going down the road 
of teshuva, of turning around, but then go, ah, this is really too costly, and then you turn around and abandon it, you can actually then bring scorn on the kingdom. It's like, well, it's like, if you don't think it's worth it, why should we think it's worth it? Uh, the Mashiach talks about that. It's recorded in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. It says, Now large crowds were going along with them, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, my student. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my student. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else... While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. So in this, the instruction, give up all your possessions, uh, connected to what you saw earlier with hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, yes, his own life. You know, when you look at those things together in context, you'll see, hey, in the word... You're told to what? Honor your father and your mother. So, honoring your father, your father and your mother um, are a good thing. The Lord blesses you with this and that. What you do, you, you thank him for it. You thank him for those things that you're given because they are a gift. They are the Lord's honoring and blessing you. And your own life. What, what do we know about your life? Your life is what? It's a gift from God. The one who, the, the Holy One is the one who gives life to all. So thus, what, do you hate the Holy One because he gives you life? No. The point is, is that all of these things should be not so tightly gripped, held on to, that you will throw everything else away to, for the sake of holding on to these things. For just like what we had uh, seen in the warning that the Mashiach uh, gave, quoting from Micah chapter 7, that there can come to be a time when society is so corrupt that even members of our own household will try to turn you in because they think they're doing something for the, the, the greater good. Or, you know, they'll think you're crazy or whatever and try to try to stop you from what you're doing your own possessions you might be afraid to lose this or that or the other so you won't take action or do anything so those are the kinds of uh, holding loosely onto things but also knowing that these are things of great value and things that the Lord gives, you know, if, as, as Paul puts it one way, you know, the law is lawful if it is used lawfully, <laughs> which can seem like double talk, but it is indeed true that you have to uh, handle these things with the, you could say, the, the heaven's greater vision, the vision Leolam over the horizon and beyond to truly see what they are for. Daniel, do you have a... Thought or a question? 
Yeah, as your earlier comment when you said it earlier regarding uh, the the totalitarian regimes, as well as coming to that matter too, as the, this quotation here, as well as many others, one of the primary reasons I believe why Christianity is so heavily scorned and hated and banned in those nations because it does not promote the nation as a state as being the most valuable thing, but it promotes the individual as being the most valuable thing. And God is a God of all mankind, but he's a God of individuals as far as because we make up a combined thing individually. Uh, and it's a fundamental important to note that when you see our own nation at some point in time, someone argue now or the future, it's your debatable opinion. As it, uh, it turns in or moves into that direction of thinking of a nation being the most important or being what's good for the nation, good for the people, it is antithetical to God himself. Yes, and that is uh, it's something interesting that you see that um, also not only is uh, the is heaven concerned about the individual, but you also see uh, concern about the 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 body of people as well. But the like the um, when it's talking about uh, when Paul mentions there uh, in Romans chapter eleven you know, about he's really perplexed that why hasn't all of his countrymen come around to recognize that Yeshua is the Mashiach. And he then um, notes that this was done, this blinding of the uh, greater Israel was done so that the fullness of the nations could come in. And also then to encourage uh, jealousy with his fellow countrymen to see, hey, this is something that the Lord is doing. Um, you see it recorded there with the, the sage Gamaliel talking to the Sanhedrin about, about the, the actions of the apostles and whether this is something that's uh, contrary to the law. And Gamaliel says, yeah, we may be actually fighting against heaven, so we have to be careful about uh, we might be acting in against what heaven is doing in this case that we don't we don't recognize or understand but that's like you mentioned there it's one of the dangers of the collective and the collective thinking is that you can be then um, willing to sacrifice the individuals for the sake of the collective something uh, a warning that that comes along <laughs> But uh, from here, we'll go into the uh, Haftar or, or the parallel passage for the Torah reading bow, which uh, is in Jeremiah chapter 46, verses 13 through 28. And uh, this is an account here of uh, much later in Israel's history, in a time where you have Nitzrayim or Egypt is um, battling and um, is countering against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the um, emperor of Babylon at that particular time period. So this is after the exile of the northern kingdoms and uh, headed toward the time period where um, you have the complete domination of the, the land by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar and, and um, Mitzrayim are butting heads there, and you know, sadly, you've got uh, Israel in the middle. 
and also you have the the subtext of Israel uh, chafing under the um, under the the thumb and the push of Babylon is thinking well we can then rely on Mitzrayim again <laughs> which kind of interesting because what is one of the things that we're, we'll see as we go along with the Exodus account is uh, don't go that way again don't go that way down to Egypt again so here we are in uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 46 starting in verse uh, 13 this is the message which the Lord spoke to Yemeriahu, the prophet, as about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to smite the land of Mitzrayim. Declare in Mitzrayim and, and proclaim in Migdol. Proclaim also in Memphis and uh, Tapanes that uh, say, Take your stand and get yourself ready, for the sword has devoured those among you, around you. Why have your mighty ones become prostrate? They do not stand because the Lord has thrust them down. They have repeatedly stumbled. Indeed, they have fallen one against another. Then they said, Get up and let us go back to our own people in our native land, away from the sword of the oppressor. They cried, Here, Pharaoh, king of Mitzrayim, is but a big noise. <laughs> he has let the appointed time pass by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor among the mountains, or like Kamrel by the sea. Make your baggage ready for exile, O daughter dwelling in Mitzrayim. For Memphis will become a desolation. It will even be burned down and bereft of inhabitants. Mitzrayim is a pretty heifer, but a horsefly is coming from the north. It is coming. Also, her mercenaries in her midst are like fatted calves, for even they too have turned back and have fled away altogether. They did not stand their ground, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. Its sound moves like a serpent, for they, dro for they move on like an army and come to her as woodcutters with axes. They have cut down her forest, declares the Lord. Surely it will no more be found, even though they are now more numerous than locusts and are without number. The daughter of Mitzrayim has been put to shame, given over to the power of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of Tabes and Pharaoh the, and Egypt along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But as for you, O Yaakov, my servant, do not fear, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For see, I am going to save you from afar, and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Yaakov will return and be undisturbed and secure, with no one making him tremble. O Yaakov, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you properly, and by no means leave you unpunished.
So thus you're seeing here what the point of the exiles was about, was to turn the nations around from the situation that we talked about like we saw in Micah chapter 7, where you had uh, righteousness was so far devoid from the people that people were turning on each other. This was no longer the land where each one helping his brother, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, as it was instructed in Leviticus 19.18. This was something that the people had broken down, and uh, the northern nation was taken off by Assyria some hundred and some odd years earlier. And here, the people of the south were flirting with having Mitzrayim, having Egypt, get their back. And as you see as it goes on, that was uh, a not such a great choice because indeed Mitzrayim left the kingdom of Yehuda, the southern kingdom, hanging. So indeed Babylon did come and not only did uh, a history recording the invasions, uh, incursions that Babylon made into Egypt, you know, beating it back into its place, but also then conquered the kingdom of Yehuda and took off um, you know, Daniel and his friends, as was recorded in the book of Daniel, but also a large number of exiles, only a small remnant of which ended up returning. So, thus, when we're talking about who do you trust, do you trust in man, do you trust in mankind, do you trust in great powers? One of the things that's revealed in this particular passage uh, to the southern kingdom is like, hey, after these exiles, the Lord is going to gather in, but a part of the exiles is to be corrected to turn around to understand why it is that the exiles happened to remember the one who is the true source of strength and not be looking for some other savior to come rescue you because interestingly enough the lord's anointed the um in this case small m mashiach that was sent to bring the people back bring this remnant back ended up being one of the empires that was enslaving them. Um, one of the Cyruses over Persia, Medo-Persia, would be the vehicle through which this return would come. It wouldn't be, it, yeah, it wouldn't be Babylon. Babylon would be taken down by Persia. And then from Persia, you would have this restoration happen. So, Connected to this is a, an interesting account uh, going back earlier in Jeremiah to uh, chapters uh, 16 and 17. We'll close out with this here today and looking at these particular chapters because this is a very interesting thing and it gets to, we were talking about a Revelation earlier, but now one of the aspects of the called out of the nations and uh, figured there by the 144,000 that that uh, perfect selection the 12 of the 12 tribes the 12 tribes that were listed there um, that they would be the ones that would be a special called out from the nations and very interestingly you you makes you wonder that this look from Jer the prophet Jeremiah, not only for the particular time period for the exiles from uh, the 
northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Yehuda, but also stretching down into the day of the Lord and the Messianic era. If what we see here about the fishers of mankind, the hunters of mankind, will be a special work of those called out. Because we see also in the prophets that when the day of the Lord does come, people will be looking for answers and they will look to those who they know have a connection with the Lord. They'll say, wait, we've heard that the Lord is with you. So, here we are in Jeremiah chapter 16. The word of the Lord also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine. And their carcasses will be food for for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter a house of mourning or go to lament or console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and compassion. Both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Moreover, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For this is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing, the voice of gladness, the voice of groom, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. Now when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, Well, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you are to say to them, It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken and have not kept my law. You too have done evil even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, As the Lord lives, who brought us up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he has banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will will fish for them, and afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. 
They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and of their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, and my refuge in the day of distress. To you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So in this account, you think, wow, this is just a sending out of the peoples to become nothing. But you see also the promise, just like you see at the end of Deuteronomy, that there would be this time of return. As it talks about there in verse 14 of chapter 16 of Jeremiah here, that these days are coming, will there will be a greater exodus. We talked about the third exodus, as it's sometimes called, the great exodus from out of the nations. And this would be something greater than we saw with the remnant that returned from Babylon and Persia. This would be a greater exodus where you see like in Revelation, where it's saying, come out of her, come out of her, my people from Babylon and all of the places where Babylon has the power in the world. So, this is something that also the reminder here that's given through the prophet that you should remember, remember why it is that these exiles happened. This was, this came for a reason because they it says they forsook the Lord. They turned their back on the Lord. So, this was a time that because they had turned their back on the Lord, the glory of the Lord departed. There was Ichavod, the glory has departed. So thus, when the glory of the Lord departed, you had, as the prophet Daniel talks about, an abomination of desolation, where then you had the desolation of the Lord's presence there in the land. And but this was something that would be turned around. Once you had the correction that would come, this this uh, return would come to the land. And again, you might say, well, wh- wh- just like what the, is mentioned here in the prophet, well, why is the Lord being so harsh? We're going to get to it when we uh, come up in a passage here that goes over Exodus chapter 19. But the point of taking the people out, this great Exodus here, the point of it was that this was to be a kingdom of priests. What are priests? Priests are to bring the people close to God. That was the port of the people of Israel. And by extension, the greater commonwealth of Israel. The point is to bring the people closer to God. Well, if the people are not close to God, how are they supposed to bring the nations close to God? That needs to be turned around for the sake of not only the people of God, but also for the whole world that is going to become grafted in, to become adopted into the family. So, sadly, it it talks about, you know, judgment starting in the house of God. That is why it has to start at the house of God, is that, um, as Yeshua put it, you know, to to those whom um, more is given, more is required. Because 
the stakes for the world are just that high. If you want to have the world brought out, and not just by, uh, as some think it is, that the God is just going to turn people into a bunch of automaton robots, but if they truly are turned over their hearts, and that old part of their way of life is circumcised off, and they truly do want to be blocked from the destroyer that is coming to destroy the old way of life in the world, that something must change, and it must change within the person. So, Sinai plus Spirit equals New Covenant. That's as far as we're going here today. As we close out, are there any other thoughts or questions? All right, well, let's uh, close out with prayer today. Father God, we thank you for giving us, giving us your words and for giving us hope, for giving us this great promise that you are going to remove our old way of life, that you're going to cover over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and that you're going to remember those no more. We thank you for this great freedom you've given us and this new beginning that you've given us through your son, Yeshua. And Father, we just ask that you give us wisdom in how we can be your servants in a world that desperately needs to know you. Father, as the days grow darker and more challenging, we just ask for for your encouragement and your spirit to guide us. In the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.